0: Hey, Don. Hello, hello, Zach. Don, are you aware that there's a presidential election coming up in about a month? I've heard that, and uh, I've seemed to see
1: Joe Biden on
0: uh, YouTube feed quite often. I was watching basketball last night. I saw President Trump. I saw presidential candidate Biden. I saw Senator ads. Ads are everywhere. And it seems like for the last year, America has been obsessed, like they always are in presidential election years, with the election. Last week, with the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I saw something that just started making me wonder a little bit. I saw half the people I know in my life really sad and really kind of down, depressed, and very pessimistic. But I saw other people in my life who were happy optimistic, excited for a new Supreme Court justice. It kind of reminded me when Justice Scalia died a few years ago, how there was a flip and there was an opposite sort of feeling by people of different parties. And I've really started to wonder a little bit about the day after our presidential election. Do you think anything's gonna be solved? Do you think anything's gonna be different in America? Or or will we still be just polarized, even though we will have a decision? Has anything changed, do you think? I think there's a certain,
1: probably 40% of America feels vindicated and excited, and then another 40% of America that feels depressed and burned. But actually, day-to-day life, I don't think changes that much for most people in most things they do, other than maybe their pride is wounded because their candidate didn't succeed as they thought they should.
0: Is it the noise that signifies nothing? I've wondered if, are we living in an age with the internet, with the Twitter, where headlines and the audio and the media just constantly bombard us to the point where everybody's ground down, but everybody's also very heightened. And therefore, everybody's just very nervous about this election, no matter which side you're on. And I think you make a good point. Are we sure that just the day after, people just don't get up and go to work? Or do you think this one's different? Every election cycle, people say this is the most consequential election of our lifetime. And yet, usually the day after, people get up and go to work.
1: They do. They get up and go to work and they go about their day because really the president doesn't determine too much in your day-to-day life. It might be big issues that you care a lot about, but your day-to-day life is not impacted tremendously. And partially that's a function of the white privilege and the situation we all, we seem to find ourselves in, meaning you and I specifically in our families, but it's also a function of our day-to-day is more affected by our jobs, by our families, and these aren't really controlled by the president. And yes, people are too upset but they're really not that impacted. However, I think it does play a role in how you take in media. So I, like you, I think I take in almost all my media by reading. And if I start to read an article and it makes me upset or I understand it and I don't want to learn more and it just makes me frustrated, I just turn the page. There's a lot of stuff that I just don't read. I don't like stories about awful things happening to people. I understand they do. And I just move on. And after the election, I'm going to read the things that I'm really interested in and the things that upset me, I'm going to go by fairly quickly. However, I think the people that watch news really feel strongly because they're sitting there for half an hour to wherever long, just getting it ground into them and keeps biting into them. Makes me think about watching Ohio State football coverage when I was in college and just kept going and going. And you just get angry and angry the longer you watched and listened. And that's part of the reason I don't like watching news.
0: That's a good point. The media obviously is produced by professional producers who cue in dramatic music, who have shocking headlines because they need to keep you watching, need to keep the advertising dollars coming. And in a way, you're right. When you read the news, it doesn't nearly sound as bleak. But at the same time, I think when people read about politics, if you disagree with what's going on or with the party that has power, everything in the future just seems so bleak. This last week, as I've been watching the headlines and watching as our government is getting ready to maybe approve another Supreme Court justice, whether or not you support this one or not, it made me think back to a book that you and I both read about 10 years ago. And it was the biography of Warren Buffett called The Snowball. This particular paragraph has been something that has stuck with me for like 10 years. And I think it kind of illustrates an interesting moment is right now, we don't know the future and therefore the future looks bleak we look at the past and we can see it 2020. We know exactly how the events lined up. And yet, I think we sometimes forget that the people who lived in the past were just like us. They didn't know what the future was going to hold. All they had was their current leadership, the current events that surrounding them, and they had to then start making judgments. And so in this particular paragraph, it talks about how in 1952, Warren Buffett was looking to ask his future wife's father, For her hand in marriage. And so he goes up to like ask him for permission to marry his daughter. And here's the best paragraph I read. It says, Warren went to talk to Susie's father to get his blessing. This, he already knew, would be easily had. But Doc Thompson took a while, quite a while, to get to the point. He started by explaining that Harry Truman and the Democrats were sending the country straight to hell. Pouring money into Europe after the war through the Marshall Plan and the Berlin airlift was just proof that the policies of that devil Roosevelt were still in place and that Truman was sending the country straight into bankruptcy. Look at how the Soviets got hold of the atomic bomb right after Truman had dismantled part of the military. Senator Joe McCarthy's House of Un-American Activities Committee was proving what Doc Thompson had known all along that the government was riddled with communists. The House of Un-American Activities Committee was finding commies everywhere. The government was downright ineffectual or worse. When it came to dealing with communism, Truman had lost China for democracy. He would never be forgiving for firing the heroic General Douglas MacArthur for insubordination after he made repeated efforts to go around Truman and get approval to attack the Chinese commies in Manchuria. But it was probably too late for even MacArthur to save the country now. The communists were taking over the world, and the stocks were going to be nothing but valueless bits of paper. So Warren's plan to work in the stock market was going to fail. But Doc Thompson would never blame Warren when his daughter starved. He was a smart young man. If not for the Democrats ruining the country, he would probably do all right. The miserable future that awaited Susie wouldn't be Warren's fault. Long used to this kind of talk from both his own father and Susie's, Warren waited patiently for the crucial word, yes. Three hours later, Doc Thompson wound his way to a conclusion and gave his consent. And so, Don, there you go. There's a primary source from the 1950s. Somebody's outlook, very bleak. What do you think when you hear that? Well, it worked out for Warren, didn't it? It did. He became a billionaire, our dream.
1: Yes, yes, a billionaire many, many, many times over. Um, it just, I think it does illustrate that, that there is times where obviously it worked out, but people felt like it was all going to end. And it reminded me of a family member I have, a man who I respect tremendously, who built a house with his own hands, paid it off and everything. And in 2008, he sold his home because he believed we'd elected a communist. It was all over. We'd see massive inflation shortly and the country would crumble. So he sold the house he built with his own hands because it was all going to end. And ultimately, it wasn't. And all the stock market and the housing market has done since 2008 is climb straight through the roof, continuingly. And everything went well. And turns out Barack Obama didn't ruin the country, although from his perspective, in well, some ways, maybe he did. But our economy is stable. Our nation is still great. And in the eyes of him, his he as the beholder, it was all over. And he just had to do what he he had to do to get by. And that was a hard, true belief felt by him. And he's a wise man. But that was the way he interpreted everything. And I think some people would think that when Donald Trump got elected, like, well, it's all over. I'm going to move to Canada. And I am guilty of this and that I jokingly said I was leaving California because Arnold Schwarzenegger was elected governor, although that's not why I left California.
0: But people feel these beliefs. Who's to tell them they're wrong? You can't, because I think what this paragraph also reminds you of is history is not predetermined. It's so easy. You and I have both taught U.S. history. It's so easy to look back and just kind of look at these bold words. I mean, you hear Berlin airlift, you hear MacArthur plan. And those are things that are like celebrated now in history books. Like, look at these great things America did. And then you hear things like uh, the House of Un-American Activities and Joseph McCarthy and how history does not look kindly upon that moment. At the moment, though, if you're living through that, I could see where you could see everything being really dark. As we know, nothing is preordained. Nothing is just coming next. And therefore, anybody's guess about what comes next is maybe a 50-50 shot. And clearly, Buffett's father-in-law was just really wrong. But yet. that moment i got to assume a large chunk of america was feeling what this guy was feeling
1: our memories of pain is are not good we don't remember pain well this is why people run a second race because racing is uncomfortable and painful but you run it again because you don't remember the pain well but the pain that people feel is real at the time and interprets how they handle things and what they think of things we don't remember them very accurately and i think if you went back and asked people What asked Warren's father 20 years after that moment, what he thought at that moment, it wouldn't be exactly what he told Warren that day, as is the case for us 20 years from now. What was it like in 2020 or 2016, for that matter? How did you feel in 2008? Our memories aren't going to be truly accurate. What's accurate is what we wrote at the time and what we're feeling at the time.
0: That's true. People's optimism and pessimism about things, it changes so rapidly and for reasons sometimes we don't even know it's always interesting when you see like polls of is america on the right track and that number you know kind of just seems to kind of flutter up and down and it's based on so many strange things i mean they've done studies where if your country wins the world cup all of a sudden everybody's feeling better i think you and i talked on a previous podcast about how the incumbents can get a point or two extra votes just based upon if the major college football team in the state wins a game on Saturday and it just makes people feel better, right? I just think this quote's interesting. I think it provides perspective. I also don't think that this quote is necessarily going to make anybody who has a pessimistic outlook feel better, but I do think it at least provides just some context that feeling bad about the future is not something that is just happening today. This is nothing new. I just kind of makes me wonder about the day after November and knowing that a large portion of America is going to be feeling something and not necessarily optimistic. And I don't know if this quote helps, but a bigger concern I have with this quote is the day after the election. All of the media is now coming up with the idea of because of COVID, because of all these mail-in ballots, we might not know who actually won the election after November 3rd. And do you think that could then provide an even bigger issue that America is going to have to deal with. Not just pessimism or optimism, but doubt, uncertainty about the election system and about who is the next president, who are the next senators and and congressmen in the government.
1: Well, we both read the article in New Yorker by Jeffrey Toobin that went round and round about this. And I left it feeling very dark and very, very sad that things were going to be very bad. And in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, a professor from Stanford had a good rejection of this, saying that we're going to know pretty quick. And his reasoning is that although, well, let's go back a step. The reason that the New Yorker article from Jeffrey Tubin said that things were going to be really bad is that Michigan doesn't count its mail-in ballots until after the election. So on election day, Republicans are more likely to show up than Democrats. So Michigan's likely to look Republican on the day of the election. Then after, as all the ballots are counted, it's going to probably switch Democratic, as the polls are all correct. Now, if that says so, then Donald Trump's right now playing that the mail-in ballots are all false, and the worst-case scenario is Trump looks like he wins Michigan the day of the election, but a week later, when all the ballots are counted, he's not, and he loses the election. And then he cries foul and maybe refuses to step down from power, as he says, although I think he says a lot of things, and it doesn't necessarily mean that those are true, but we can come back to that. And the Wall Street Journal article was saying that, yes, Michigan's going to take a couple of weeks to actually know what happened, but Florida will be all counted pretty much on the day of the election because they count their mail-in ballots as they come in. Within a short order, we'll know what happened in Florida. And if you know what happened in the Florida counties and the Pennsylvania counties, because they count before as well – you're going to pretty much be able to guess what's going to happen everywhere else. Even if it is razor close, the wise news agencies aren't going to predict Michigan and Washington, these two flip states that count them late, until when they actually should be counted. And so the worst case scenario, I think, is not really the case scenario that we're going to feel. Although, when we look back to the Bush-Gore election, then we do see the worst case scenario. And ultimately, it played out in a way that was resolved without military action, without true revolution, it was resolved. And it's a good sign for our democracy that we do this.
0: Your word resolve, and you're bringing up of the Bush-Gore thing. I wonder a lot about that nowadays, because I kind of wonder if Al Gore conceding that election is one of the more understated moments in American history. And the fact that here were two political parties fighting over the White House, going down to a 5-4 decision. And the fact that Gore got up and publicly just said, like, this is over, like George Bush is the president, is a major thing that we've been doing in our nation for hundreds of years. And... Currently, our our president has come out and said, like, he's not guaranteed a peaceful transition of power. Now, many people in the Republican Congress have come out and disowned that statement and said, no, there's going to be a peaceful transition. And as you said, it might just be bluster and in the news and stuff like that. But what does concern me is the confusion. As you've said, the best case scenario is that ballots have been counted and we know who wins on November 3rd or the, the election day. At the same time, what if we don't know? Because the one thing we know about our country is we have no patience. If somebody is not talking and giving the facts, that allows everybody on cable news, it allows everybody writing newspaper editorials to start talking. And it kind of reminds me of in a football game where there's a fumble and there's a huge pile, and all the guys not in the pile start pointing in their direction, just saying, like, we got it. And as the viewer at home who can't see at the bottom of the pile of who actually has the ball, you're like, yeah, like, I think we got it. You're just waiting until you get some sort of resolution. And this is obviously a little more important than a football fumble but everybody's just going to be pointing. And then you're going to have all of the media pointing in on places like Michigan or other states that are counting. They're going to now start trying to bring up things or reporters will start trying to dig up nuggets that may or may not be true. And people will start making mountains out of molehills about whether or not the process is valid, right? We've already now had a whole year where people have been questioning whether the mail-in ballots are going to be valid. And so- all this doubt, all this confusion. And then ultimately, the problem is, let's say it does take a few weeks to count it. In that time, you've now got both sides of America who have hardened their thinking and have decided that this is just a fraudulent election. And whoever maybe does technically win, half of the country just believe they didn't win. It was, it was all a fraud. The election was stolen from somebody.
1: I mean, yeah, I guess that's possible. I don't think that's what happened in the Bush-Gore, perhaps because Gore concedes. If Biden ends up losing, I'm sure he'll concede. If Trumps loses... I think he'll eventually concede. I mean, he said he's going to send Hillary to prison and then he got elected and he's like, no, we can't do that. We're not doing that. Like, He just wants to seem like he's a fighter so that his backers will be for him. But I think in the in the end, he's going to concede and be like, eh, I'm going to go back to Florida or whatever. I don't care. I didn't want to win anyway. I didn't want to do this. I already fixed everything in the first term. He's going to go with that. And like you said, people will be pointing and Who's really watching? I guess it's my, that's my question. Who really cares? I guess it's the people that are watching their news for six hours a day. But most people I know are more concerned with living their day-to-day lives. We have feelings on the election, but we're still going to go to work. It's not like we're going to take to the streets. I mean, there are people taking the streets, but it's because they feel that they're in danger because they're being threatened by police and whatnot. And rightfully so. But I just don't see a massive revolt over the Republican-Democratic Election.
0: And that's possible. You're right. This could just be, you know, again, a mountain out of a molehill. But I do think people have very strong opinions about this election and they have very strong opinions about who they want to win. I could just see where maybe the longer term damage is people's confidence in the election system. You know, they talked about uh, in the New Yorker article by Tubin about how, like, Nixon refused to sort of contest the election. It was obviously very close in 1960 against Kennedy. His sort of thinking and the people around him is that like people need to have elections that are believe are accurate and that there's a peaceful transition of power. Like that precedent is more important. Now that we had 2000, where you had a 5-4 Supreme Court decision, I think that's already started to erode in people's minds. Now we've got you know the idea of more mail-in ballots that's starting to erode into some people's minds about whether or not elections can be done fair and safely, and also just the fact that. There's no universal way to vote in our country. The idea that it's such a decentralized process, every county, every area that that holds an election has... Their own kind of nuanced ordinances and laws and officials. And therefore, it's not like you and I can really understand how people vote in like Oklahoma. Like I remember in 2000 when we learned about the term hanging Chad, right? And you were like, people are still punching pieces of paper to vote. And yet that's how some places vote. And it just also makes it really difficult to kind of understand the process from a universal standpoint.
1: I disagree. I think that the local control of elections is a very important thing. And regardless of whether those territories are Republican or Democratic, they are represented by the people that are in control. So if it's a Republican area and there's Republicans in control, Republicans are running the election system. And some states, like Georgia's weird because the big city is very liberal and the rest of the state is very conservative. But regardless of that, if the states are running it, then they have a right to predict and control it. And they're ready to defend how they vote and how they do it. I think that's a strength, and they report how they're going to vote. I mean, ultimately, I don't think we do elections right in our country. I think we have too much of a lead up. The British like notify people and have an election in like a month. We have way too much leading up and way too much in stock, but I don't think that local control is our problem.
0: That's a really good point. About the fact that running for president is now almost a year and a half or two year process if you consider the primaries. I do think there's something about the idea that in a parliamentary system like in Great Britain, where somebody calls for an election and then I think there's like 30 or 60 days and then they have to go vote, it does seem like our country is sort of goes into paralysis mode. Well, we just sort of wait for the election and we just keep letting people kind of mug for the cameras. And yet, I've always wondered like, at this point, how many people don't know what they're going to do on election day? You know, are people really waiting for these debates or are we just waiting to be entertained by two politicians that get 90 seconds to explain their stance on really complex issues?
1: Yeah, there's like six to nine percent of people are still undecided by the Wall Street Journal poll I saw recently. I just can't imagine that there's these people out there. And my wife is always frustrated. Like, who is it? These are disparate choices. How do you not choose between these two? But ultimately, I think they're just choosing, are they going to vote or not? But yes, I, I guess they could be waiting for the debates. I don't think the debates are really that watched as much anymore. The first one's Tuesday. I didn't realize it was that close. I don't know if it's going to change any opinions, but it's going to happen.
0: You know, you had those debates. And then, of course, both sides claim victory afterwards even though it's not like you really won anything. It's not like America voted on who won the debate, but it's all a spectacle, right? And I, and I guess maybe some people will watch and, and make a decision. I mean, people do say that in 1960, when they held the first televised debate, people saw the young boyish John Kennedy and, and that did persuade some people that you know hadn't made up their minds yet and stuff like that but in an era where pictures images video just fly around so quickly it's kind of like well who hasn't seen what these people look like both of these candidates are extremely old they both of them kind of represent the generation that is above all of us and you could say that's great we've got two elder statesmen then looking to uh you know take over america but in some ways you know if you're you and i you kind of look at both guys and say aren't we looking more at the past than towards the future? Debates
1: with Kennedy-Nixon, like there was – one thing on tv during that time period and there was only tv for like 10 hours a day there wasn't the internet people watched the whole thing and had a real takeaway now they're going to watch little clips from their preferred news source which is going to try to aim things to be in the favor of the candidate that they support whether that's cnn or fox news so really i don't see it changing things that much yes these guys are really old yes they are what we've done in the past but what new do we have to offer? Who's who's our new upcoming candidate? I'm really looking for them and I'm not seeing them from either side. Really, Trump crushed a bunch of young people who had ideas and turns out what the people of the Republican Party wanted was not ideas so much as bluster and trash talk. And the people of the Democratic Party could have voted for young, interesting people, but instead they voted for tradition and whoever they thought they could beat this Trump buster. So it's just weird who people think. It's like they're trying to choose winners, not they're trying to choose leaders.
0: That's a good point. Uh, the cult of personality, I think, is, is now seeming to take on even a bigger role. I'm amazed at how you know, we don't see a ton anymore written about policies, about tax policies, about healthcare policies, uh, foreign policies, All of those things are out there and there are think tanks working on those issues. But it's just amazing how it's kind of like, do you like this guy or do you like this guy? And tone is such a big deal. And maybe that's always been a big part of elections.
1: No, you're exactly right. And I remember the moment where I realized this is that uh, I think it was George W. Bush released his when he was running for election. He released his plan to balance the budget. And it's all fake numbers based upon the gdp increasing at some obscene rate and these unlikely things happening and if all these things come to line that we'd balance the budget and get rid of the debt. And then the Democratic candidate released a similar set of numbers that were unrealistic and fake. And I was like, "Oh, okay, so we don't have any policy. These aren't realistic proposals." But yet we're going to say it's a proposal and say we have a solution because we want the answers to everything. And the one exception is the Republicans just haven't offered a healthcare plan at all. They're just not going to make up, they're just going to campaign against the one that the Democrats offered. So it's just people don't want solutions. They want a person that's going to say they're going to fix everything. It's like the Hail Mary pass. Throw it deep. Don't just show me the ground game and how you're going to eventually get there. Just show me some glory, splashy thing because it's going to be what I want to vote for.
0: The other thing I, I've started wondering a lot about the day after the election is you're kind of saying, look, like, I don't think much is going to change. People are going to go, go to work. It'll be Washington as usual. But do you think Washington is being fundamentally changed in a way that is kind of recreating our government under new rules, not necessarily illegal rules, but new rules and new behaviors? And of course, a lot of people are upset about the fact that Donald Trump is now appointed another Supreme Court justice and it looks highly likely that the Republican Senate will be confirming this justice before the election of course the Democrats are sort of pointing to hypocrisy after Obama had pointed uh, Merrick Garland and then in uh, February uh, said Look I tired to the Supreme Court, and Ms McConnell said, "Look like we need to wait till we have a new president to, to make this sort of appointee so we can see the will of the people and now he 's kind of reversed that also back in two thousand and seventeen, he got rid of the judicial filibuster, and people were like, "'Oh my God, this is just uh, way too much power for for a sense of the body that normally has always been a very uh, slow moving consensus building Senate and yet I found this really interesting paragraph from Mother Jones that was talking about, look, there's not much left that the Democrats can do, except they've got to make some big threats. And so I want to read you this paragraph that Mother Jones just sort of suggested that the Democrats should do in order to keep Trump and the Republicans from pushing in a new Supreme Court justice. And here's the paragraph. They wrote, the win over reasonable Republicans with reason strategy is weak sauce. That leaves the Democrats with one other choice total political warfare. The Senate's Democrat leader, Chuck Schumer, with the backing of Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, needs to threaten massive retaliation. Should McConnell try to ram a Trump nominee through, Schumer ought to vow that the Democrats, if they win back the Senate and Biden is elected president, will demolish the filibuster, which will allow the Senate to proceed to make Washington, D.C., a state with two more likely Democratic senators. And they will move to add two or four more seats to the Supreme Court. There is nothing in the Constitution that limits the court size to the current nine justices. In other words, they will implement a Republican nightmare, which, as it happens, can be justified on arguments of equity and fairness. So, this was something that Biden has not come out and supported, neither has Pelosi or Schumer yet. But it's the kind of rhetoric that I think makes a lot of conservatives like afraid of, oh, my God, look, they're just going to make up the government as they go. Mm -hmm. And it's the kind of rhetoric that gets people fired up if you are a Democratic supporter and you feel like you don't have any power. But at the same time, this is also a total reimagination of the government. To just try to get power back on your side if you have the votes, I guess. What do you think about this stuff? Do people be concerned that we're looking at ways of stretching and re-angling how our government has usually worked?
1: Well, you met in your brief lead up to the quote, you missed a little bit of history in that you talked about all the things Republicans had done to make their to increase their power when they controlled the Senate. But before that, Democrats had already changed the judicial voting on Supreme Court justices to 50% instead of two-thirds. And before that, they'd blocked the nomination of Robert Bork, who was a candidate who was of conservative beliefs that they didn't like. It was kind of a jerk. But in pre-times, would have ordinarily been approved because it was just the general... Understanding that you approve Supreme Court justices nominated, even if they're against your political beliefs. So it wasn't just the Republicans who've done this. It's been Democrats as well. But this continuing like zero sum game of we have to win and we have to take this, this justice, this thing, and it just makes it more and more extreme. I'm anti-vote packing. I think we need to realize that politics are not necessarily a zero-sum game. It's not like every win for one person is a loss for some other person. We need to be a little bit more into the tradition of it and not changing so much. And yes, the Democrats can go to war, but then if the Republicans take charge again in four years, then they'll be the ones licking their wounds and saying, oh, I can't believe they're doing this. Well, they're, everybody's doing the same kind of movement. But this is not the most polarized that our country's ever been. A man beat a man almost to death on the floor of the Senate in the US co- Capitol uh, during a congressional, a Senate debate. I mean, these things have happened before in the past. I just don't think we're running the right direction. I think we should realize that the things are set up for a reason and that we don't want our government to move fast. We don't want our government to be all in one party's control and then four years later all in another party's control. It just would end up with a zigzagging pattern that's not really accomplishing much. But I guess that's the way we're going.
0: Well, that's what's so interesting is the idea of the short-termism of ram it through now because you have power, get what you can get. We saw it with Obamacare when it was sort of passed through the reconciliation process. so They didn't have to technically get filibuster-proof Senate vote. We've seen it with lots of basically legislation that presidents are trying to get through because they can never beat the filibuster. Yet it's kind of interesting because people have said, look, like, You know, the legislative filibuster. Someday your party won't have power because in history we've seen both sides have their moments come and go. And therefore, don't you want to make sure that you're reserving your minority rights? I saw an interesting statistic that just said since 1992, the Republicans have won only one popular vote in the last seven presidential elections. Basically, they've won electoral colleges, but not popular votes. And it seems like from like a demographic standpoint, that slowly the country maybe is turning more blue. But obviously, from a current legislative and presidential standpoint, it's still pretty red. Therefore, wouldn't you want to make sure that you don't take up the rhetoric and don't change things so much that you could damage your party in the future if you don't have power? But then I part of me kind of says, you know what? Isn't the problem with our country that everything is so slow and so laborious? I've always kind of admired the parliamentary system where if your party gets power, meaning you've had to cut deals with other political parties in order to to form a coalition, but once you get power, you're kind of in charge. And then you also kind of have to own and be responsible for whatever it is you do. You could say people might ram things through, but it's a lot easier to kind of vote and just say like, We have no confidence in our current leadership. They have all the power. Wouldn't getting rid of the legislative filibuster maybe be a good thing?
1: I guess so. I mean, I know in the British Parliament they have total control, but I think Margaret Thatcher said when you have total control, you also have total accountability. So everything you did is your fault. And you end up with massive changes like Brexit, which is Huge, I mean, can you imagine American change where we say like okay we 're not going to trade with Canada or uh, Mexico? I mean it would really throw the economy into collapse, and we 're not meant to run that way and the electoral college, or as Kevin Kopeck calls it the electrical college, is one that was designed that way for a purpose to balance out power. Sure, Republicans have lost the popular vote that 's because they get like nothing in California or New York, our two, most, two of our most populous states. And the rest of the country is fairly balanced. But it seems like you're saying the short-term value of it uh, is not wise to use. I think it's better to look long run. But nobody wants to look long run because they want to look at right now. What can I win on Twitter? What can I win in the news today or today's news? I think it comes with our current life, which is everything by the moment. I find myself looking at my phone and saying, what's happening right now?
0: And you feel something when you see it, right? And then that that changes if you're optimistic or pessimistic about the future.
1: Yeah, I was at a we were at a friend's house hanging out, and I looked at my phone after supper, and the people we were staying with uh, or visiting yelled at me for looking at my phone because I wasn't engaged in the day to day population, day to day what we were talking about at the table. And I was just like, I just want to know if Mitt Romney's going to be. voting for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement to be a Republican or a Democrat. and What's Mitt Romney deciding? And then I thought, why do I really care that much? I can find this out in an hour. I don't need to know right now. And ultimately, this may be decided in weeks or months. Why do we have to find out right now or by the Arizona Senate election, which could play a role in that as well?
0: No, that's a good point. Having listened to that Hamilton biography this summer you know, they talk about the election process and how like people went to vote and it was like a month and a half, two months later until they finally like announced like kind of who won. I mean, people had an idea, but they had to like certify their elections. The Electoral College had to go and vote. The level of patience just because people accepted that the communication wasn't fast is just kind of impressive in some ways. Whereas today, you're right, though, people are going to want to know. And I just do wonder if people are just going to end up doubting everything even more. And then you get this sort of rhetoric of, well, we're just going to court pack, or we're just going to change things, or we're going to ram this through. And that just seems kind of damaging. At the same time, it's not different. The other thing I remember reading in that Hamilton biography was during the treaties with France, James Madison got all upset that Washington was going to go and and approve the treaties. And he was like, I don't want to ratify this. He's like, the House should have a say in this, and because the Senate's the one that ratifies treaties, and Washington's like, go get your notes from the Constitutional Convention. You argued for this, and it, was, it kind of sat him down, but it was like, people have been trying to, I guess, mess around with what, with what parts of our government have different responsibilities since the beginning as well.
1: Well, I think this all comes to Donald Trump. He really wants to make it seem that the votes aren't secure, even though all the evidence is to the contrary that he won't concede, which is something that even Mitch McConnell saying like, yes, we will have a peaceful transfer of power. I think he just wants to portray it as an applause line. How can he get people behind him? He just wants to get applause. So he's saying, I won't concede the election because then maybe his supporters will applaud for him and say, all right, yes, he's a fighter. He's fighting to the end. Or he says, I'm not going to lose because I'm a winner. And the only reason it looks like I'm losing is because these polls and the votes are wrong. He just wants to portray himself as a winner, and it's unwise and short-sighted, and it's foolish, But and it's also sowing fear in democracy. But I don't think the fear's really there. I don't think we're really thinking that it's going to become a dictatorship. I don't think anybody believes that really Donald Trump's going to lose the election, all the states will certify that he lost, and then he'll stay in power. That's not the way our country works, and we have safeguards to assure that. And I know that we have had bad presidents in the past, we've had unwise presidents in the past, and we've always seemed to rattle on. So I'm not that concerned.
0: Fair enough. I'm with your mind, too, of it's just hard to believe that the day after the election, I just all of a sudden see fire in the streets or people acting out of the ordinary. I think again, half of our nation will be disappointed and the other half will be optimistic and feeling great. But I do just sort of wonder, have we maybe reached a point where there's enough doubt about the process that there could be a longer term damage about this whole thing. And that people have reached a point where they don't just say, well, hey, in four more years, we're gonna run again. And I'm gonna go door to door and and try to convince people that my side is right. And is it possible that we've kind of gone past that, not necessarily because of the two candidates, but just because of how we as America communicate, how we treat each other now, how we vilify each other. And that's the other part I I think is really hard is people see each other of a different political spectrum and they have like negative thoughts and they, they make a lot of judgments that I don't know were there a long time ago. You know, I mean, if you were a Bob Dole supporter in 1996, I don't know if Clinton supporters were were seeing you as, as some sort of enemy now within with on the same team, if you know what I'm saying. I'm of
1: the firm belief that every president is the solution to the previous president and that they go back and forth so that George, Bush was, George W. Bush was so certain of himself based upon his religion and his faith and uh, his judgment that he launched two wars against countries that we really didn't need to go to war with, and many Americans died. And his faith and quick sure-footedness is something that was quickly solved by Barack Obama, who was the wise, considerate, thoughtful, and patient professor that took over. And then after this patient professor who was very thoughtful and high-minded, we got somebody that was uh, just a firebrand, just talking uh, without thinking and getting people fired up and yelling and screaming and saying odd and upsetting things. Who's going to be our next president? I hope we, we ebb back and we go, the tide recedes and we get to a more sage way of looking at things.
0: Is could we get to a point where we, you know, stop shouting and maybe just talk to one another, uh, try to find if there is a common ground. And I, and I really do believe that there is. I, I was thinking, actually, when we talked about our Hamilton podcast and you, you know, gave a shout out to Theodosia, Aaron Burr's daughter and the song and what it meant to you about two people, two rivals, that's Hamilton and, and Burr singing about their love of their kids and the love of their families I think that's something that, like, everybody forgets, like, in America, that, like, we all love our families. Like, we all have a lot in common. We all have communities that we care about that we want to, you know, see grow and prosper. Sometimes I think we get so narrowed down into the news of our phone that I think sometimes we forget there is still a lot there that that we do have in common.
1: I listened to a, uh, well, it was a YouTube thing, and it was uh, Malcolm Gladwell talking with Trevor Noah. And Malcolm Gladwell is arguing that we need to see that politics are in less zero sum. And that when we see somebody we don't know with a political sign that we don't agree with, we tend to assume that that's the most important thing in their life. So if you see a Black Lives Matter sign in somebody's yard, people tend to assume that that's the most important in a single issue in their life. And the same thing with a Trump sign in their yard. But perhaps it's the sixth or seventh most important thing in their life. Maybe they see themselves first as a father or a mother or a coach or somebody that is religious or caring. And really that these things aren't that important. We got to realize that we can have things in common with people that we disagree with politically. I know there are people that I disagree with politically, but I still get along with them. I just try not to talk about the politics of it. And we need to come together a little more. And the politics is the opposite of this, because they make their hay by creating division, which is not at all what we need. But we as individuals need to look out and say, how can we unite? How can we look at these people and say, what do we have in common? How can we see beyond this one thing we disagree with? Because by the way, we all disagree on one thing. I could walk into your house and start spouting about my hate of space and space discovery and money on the space program and really get you frustrated but that's the one thing that we really disagree about.
0: But that's what's so interesting, is you could come into my house and start talking about how going back to the moon is a waste of money or or Mars colonization is stupid. And yet to me, that's my moment to then come back at you and explain my position. And one thing I'm always amazed at in America is how we seem to have very little intelligent discussion or debate about politics. I've always wondered, like, one of my favorite shows over the last 20 years is Pardon the Interruption with uh, Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon. And all they do is talk about sports, right? And these are two very uh, articulate men who, who are great thinkers And I've always thought like, man, like, why can't they have a show where they talk about politics like this? And and why can't other people that, you know, talk about sports who do a really good job like using data and statistics, talk about politics. And yet, it seems to be like an unspoken rule in our country is don't talk about politics, because you're just going to turn off half of your audience. And if people want to hear about politics, they're just going to go to their little portal, that's going to kind of be their echo chamber. And it's not going to be very thoughtful. And I just always wondered, like, why don't, more people speak about it or why don't we educate people about how to maybe talk about it. Instead, as you said, like my friends come over, and we just don't talk about it.
1: I love part of the interruption as well. And Wilbon and Kornheiser are great. And it's a New York Jewish guy and a Chicago African-American guy talking about sports. But the night, one of the best parts of that show is that there is a clear winner and loser and somebody was right or wrong. And the next day after they talk about the NBA game and Tony who thinks LeBron is great and Wilbon who thinks LeBron is going to play badly after LeBron plays great. Tony says, yeah, how about your boy, Wilbon? How about, how'd your boy do last night? Okay. You were right. I was wrong. Like that's part of it that you love is that you can, there is a right and wrong. There is a winner and loser in sports and you can agree and say, okay, yeah, but then, and there's a clear way to can have that discussion. And in politics, it's less clear who the direct winner is and the direct loser is. And there's also people who have strong feelings that are just not going to be changed. I have a friend who loves the bills, and he will always love the bills. But from the, other than that, he'll talk about any politics and be like, okay, yeah, maybe the patriots are good. Maybe they're going to win. Maybe they're not. Not going to have that discussion about abortion because people have strongly held beliefs and they aren't swayed. You might sway me on space, but if you have strong feelings on abortion, the likelihood that you'll sway the other person is very small.
0: But that's a really good point. You talk about the idea of There is a definitive end to a sporting game where you get a result. Politics are this eternal thing that never ends, right? There's always a new crisis in Washington. There's always a new policy that we're either trying to approve or reject. There's always a new foreign issue. And therefore, there never is sort of a definitive moment. But at the same time, we as a nation seem to want to consume politics like it's sports, like there's a winner and a loser. The one thing that seems to be most interesting is that There just seems to be a cognitive dissonance of if you end up supporting the party that maybe does have the policy that's in the wrong, you tend to kind of just ignore it and and keep moving on. Or even if the data shows you like, no, like this is actually what's going on. This is why this policy doesn't work. People just they don't want to accept it. And I just find it interesting that we want winners and losers, but yet we don't actually want to accept if maybe there is a win or a loss.
1: Yeah, well, there's no reconciliation. People aren't ready to say, okay. But then there's also a large group of people that don't wanna talk about it. You know, that don't wanna talk about politics, don't wanna talk about religion, don't wanna talk about sex, which are interesting topics. And I'm game to talk about them, but a lot of people don't. My wife does not know how her parents voted in any election. They never talked about it. And that was part of the way they did things. And I think there's a lot of societies, a lot of families like that. And so it isn't necessarily always out in the open. Maybe it's just an unset upon, unspoken agreement or disagreement for that matter.
0: Yeah. I mean, they always say like the silent majority, right? It's out there and people that maybe don't want to talk about it, don't want to um, go out and make their points I don't know, I guess like maybe this is just kind of the, uh, the castle on the cloud here where you just, you'd like to see an America that wants to talk about it. I've been trying to find a positive about the day after the election. And one thing I, I wrote down was that I think we're probably looking at an election where more Americans than ever go out to vote. Usually every year, we always decry the fact that like half of America goes to vote in these things. I think we're going to see a record turnout. And that means people are more politically active. Maybe people are learning about the process. People are realizing that maybe they can have a voice and have a say and how that could really change America. Maybe people are actually learning about things like the electoral college, which most people are probably ignoring when they're in high school government. And all of that is probably a good thing, right? That we're learning about the system. We're actually being more active in it.
1: Certainly we are. And I sent you a picture from the Wall Street Journal earlier this week that people now a far higher percentage of people know their First Amendment rights, what the rights are of religion, to assemble, to speak. And it's a much higher percentage than it was five years ago because people are more aware and they are paying attention. And that is what's good. So we can take away with that. That and less ads.
0: It will be interesting. I, I look forward, I don't really I don't know if I look forward to it or not anymore. The day after the election will just be Something to at least jot down in your diary. I guess I would say, going back to that Buffett quote, four years from the day after the election, will we think back to it all? Will we even remember what it was like, if you know what I'm saying? Because we'll just be obsessed with the next day after the election.
1: I guess so. I think it'll be more spread out over a week. But I think we'll have a pretty good feeling of whether or not our side went well or not. But I don't think it'll be like Warren. Warren got a firm yes or no. Eventually, eventually he got the yes that he wanted.
0: That's true. He just had to wait. Did you ask your father-in-law for your wife's hand in marriage? You know, I did not. And part of that was because I think my my wife would have been upset. She's always believed that like she's not a piece of property to be bartered about. And therefore, if I want to marry her, that I should ask her because she is in charge of her own life. I kind of respect the tradition of it. And I saw that. But I also thought that I might get a no if I, if I went that route, if that makes sense.
1: Ironically, I asked my father-in-law, and he said, well, I don't know, it's up to her. What if she says yes, sure? Yeah.
0: <laughs> and there you go. And I, I did not get a speech, though, about how the, the world was ending. This would have been right around, uh, boy, I think towards the end of the Bush year. So America was pretty pessimistic about foreign policy as the Iraq wars weren't going on. But I did not get a speech about how uh, we were involved in endless wars and uh, trillions of dollars of more debt.
1: I don't think my father-in-law is concerned with the world. He doesn't talk about politics, so he was probably like, well, as long as the Masters is on soon, we'll be all good.
0: <laughs> and, you know, to be honest, the Masters are in November. I do wonder, maybe that will uh, take away some angst there from America as we try to see if Tiger Woods can get another Masters shirt there, a coat there.
1: We can all come together with Tiger Woods, the apolitical sports star that everybody loves slash hates.
0: Well, Don, it's been uh, a pleasure talking with this week. Uh, Obviously, one month here. We'll see uh, how the election plays out.
1: I can't wait for it to be over. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye.